turn your Bibles to Job chapter 1, and uh, we're going to do an overview. I remember the first time that I ever flew on my own by myself. It was coming back, I think, for Thanksgiving or Christmas break uh, from Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia, and we flew over Washington, D.C. at night. And I just remember looking out in Washington, D.C. at night from the air, when you look up from the air, it's just like this. It was just, I, I, back then, I was a, a Lord of the Ring fans, uh, Lord of the Ring fan before it was uh, famous and the faddish thing to uh, be into and had read The Hobbit. And it just looked like smog's jewel, jeweled, uh, just laying out there. It was just the most amazing, the lights, and they were red and yellow and white, and, and it was just a sea of that. And I just remember looking out that plane window and just, seen a different perspective. And then I remember another time where uh, I spoke uh, for the Taiwanese American kids, and Gwen and I flew back from that, and uh, it was on July 4th, and we had the privilege of watching July 4th fireworks going off from an airplane as you dr- flew over America. And, and it was just a, a real different, because you saw like 15 different fireworks displays all at once going off all over the country. And, and you just always think, uh, when I'm when I look down at that, I just think of all that's going on below, and how insignificant we really are from God's perspective. Well, I say all that to say we want to look at the the perspective of the book of Job. We want to see the big picture. In a sense, we want to fly over the book, and we want to look down. And you'll see when you see a book from beginning to end then you see it differently. There's things that stand out differently, and you see what's really important. So we're going to get an overview of the book of Job, kind of fly over it, and see it from the the, the perspective of, of the big picture. So here's two to, three things that we're going to look at today. First of all, we're going to look at the key players in the story. The key players in the story. The second thing we're going to look at is the big picture of the story. The big picture. Okay, who are the key players in this story? And then what's the big picture? And then the third thing we're going to look at is the main purpose for the story. What is the purpose of Job? So those are the three things. And let's dive in to first the key players in the story. And I'm not going to go into this in detail. I just want to throw out who they are and what themes they really represent in the story. And all of you got a hand, right? Hold your hand. Everybody got a hand? Okay, there's five key players in the story, and let me just give them to you real quickly. First is Job. Job's your thumb, because your thumb comes into contact with all the rest of your fingers, and Job comes into the contact with everybody else in the story. So you got Job. We're going to look at then God. Job and God interact. Then we're going to look at Satan. Satan and Job interact. Then we look at Job and his wife. Job and his wife interact. And then the longest part of the book is Job and his friends. So you got a hand with five fingers. you got five main players. That gets you a grip on this story. But I want you to see the themes that tie in with them. The first is Job and his integrity. When you think about the Job in this story, you want to think about his integrity in both prosperity and adversity. When we think of Job, we think of suffering, but that's not the key element of Job in this story. It's integrity in both prosperity and adversity. He's the hero of this epic story, and he's a man named Job. The first verse says, a man was. The last verse says, Job died an old man and full of days. From beginning to end, he's the hero 
of the story. The focus, though, is on his blameless integrity. And I have all those verses. And those verses are the key verses that use the same Hebrew word for integrity. And you can see it goes from beginning to end. It's his integrity that is the most important thing about Job's character. It's his it's integrity that his main concern is with his children. It's about their integrity and, and their integrity on earth. When we open up in Job 1... We're going to see what's going on in heaven. And the number one concern of God in heaven is Job's integrity. The number one attack of Satan on Job is going to be on his integrity. That's why Job's suffering. It's because of his integrity. Job's responses to his suffering all emphasize these two things. Listen to Job 1.22. Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. After losing everything. Then when he lost his health, Job did not sin with his lips. It's all about integrity. In fact, when you come to the end, the final speech of Job in this book is a defense of his integrity. Listen to these words. Far be it from me that I should declare you right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I won't deny that I'm blameless. And then he says one of his last words before God speaks to him. He says, let him weigh me with accurate scales. Let God know my integrity. Here's the point. Job has the ability to persevere through prosperity and and adversity without losing his integrity. You know, it's one thing to be godly when everything's going well, right? It's another thing to be godly when nothing's going right. And we all have a tendency to excel in one of those, right? You know, when things are going well, some of, some of us, our first uh, response is, God is so good. Others of us, when things are going well, the last thing we think of is God, right? Because everything's going well. Adversity. Some of us, that's when we really get godly. Man, when I'm suffering, God help me. God, I've never been closer to God, never been in church more, never talked to the pastor more. I'm suffering. And then others of us, though, we're tempted the opposite in suffering. We suffer and we're like, God's our enemy. We're not even thinking about God. We're focused on ourselves, our pain, our, our health, our, our worries. And so it's pretty amazing when you think that Job maintained his integrity in both immense prosperity and undeserved and unbelievable adversity. Isn't that amazing? That's Job. Job and his integrity. He maintained it. Now, the second key player is God. And the word you want to think about in regards to him of this book is God and his sovereignty. God and his sovereignty, or you could say majesty. Uh, God and his sovereignty or majesty over prosperity and adversity. The greatest and most glorious, glorious person in this book is God. How do we know that? Because in chapters... The climax of the book in chapters 38 through 42, the book climaxes with God revealing himself. And what he reveals about himself is his glory and his greatness. It's all about his sovereignty. In fact, the names of God used in this book, uh, the names of God used in this book emphasize his sovereignty. Uh, the typical 
name for God in the Old Testament is Yahweh, Lord, in all caps. In your English Bibles, it's all caps. You rarely find that in the book of Job. The, the words that are used for God the most in the book of Job are words like El Shaddai, Shaddai, Almighty, God as just God. And so the whole emphasis in the book of the names, the major emphasis, is on His sovereignty. The focus, though, is on God's sovereignty over prosperity and over adversity. That's the focus. Why do we say this? Well, let me give you real quickly uh, two ways of thinking. There's lots of things that I can I, I could take you through and show this. But the way sovereignty is talked about in this book, it's about God being sovereign over our prosperity and our, and, and our uh, adversity. And one way you can see this is Satan complains about God putting a hedge of protection around Job and his prosperity. All right? And so there, God put this hedge, you know, so you think of all these thorns, and that's to keep uh, Satan, you know, out. Satan's trying to penetrate in this hedge of protection. And God is sovereign. He says, look, the reason Job uh, loves you so much is because you put this hedge of protection. I can't get in there and do anything to him. That's why he loves you. And he wants, Satan wants God to remove this hedge of protection. But if God doesn't remove it, it's not going anywhere. Satan can't, God's sovereign over Job's protection. But then what's interesting is as the story progresses, God says, okay, I'll remove that hedge of protection. And then later you get Job is, is complaining about now there is a hedge of restriction around him a hedge of restriction around him in his adversity. And he's complaining about that because God has put a hedge of protection and he can't get or a hedge of restriction that he can't get out of. Okay? So God's sovereign and everybody's complaining about it. Satan's complaining because you put a hedge of protection. He's in there being blessed and enjoying his prosperity, prosperity, and I can't get to him. And God says, okay, well, let's do this. And he puts a hedge of restriction, and Job starts complaining, God's got a hedge around me. Now, here's a good question. Is it the same hedge? You know, that's a good question, something to ask, something to think about. Actually, this, this hedge is much bigger because it included all that God, uh, Job possessed. This got real small. It got all the way down, and the hedge was simply, Job says, I'm hedged in. Now, here's what's interesting. What happened here was, now Satan is allowed to come into this hedge, but Job can't get out. That's why it's a hedge of restriction. But the interesting thing, who's sovereign over all that? God. Okay? Isn't that interesting? That's interesting. And how does this relate to Job's integrity? It relates this way. Here, he's fear, Job is, uh, maintains his integrity and fears God, and Satan says, well, of course he does. You have a hedge of protection around him. The question becomes, Satan says, will he still fear you when the hedge of protection is, is removed and there's a hedge of restriction of adversity? I predict he will curse you to your face. Very interesting, isn't it? When he has his health, doesn't have his health, doesn't have his wealth. So here's the point. You say, where does God's sovereignty come into this? The point is, 
Is God worthy to be worshipped in both prosperity and adversity? So there you go. I I can't, I got to keep moving. Number three, Satan is our third key player. Satan and his hostility against God and his people. Satan and his hostility. See, he says, of course this happens, but will he do this? See, Satan, Satan means adversary. So when we talk about Satan in the book of Job, we're going to call him the adversary. And the adversary does two things. He accuses and he attacks. You got it? Adversaries accuse and attack. Who is he accusing and attacking? He's accusing and attacking God, and he's accusing and attacking Job. In fact, he attacks Job in order to attack God. And what he's basically saying is, Job has been bought by you. The reason he worships you is because you've bought him and bribed him with all these blessings. Take away the hedge of protection and he will curse you. You get it? Job is worshiping you because of what he gets from you. And you have Job's worship because of what you give to him. This is a sham. Your motives are wrong, God. His motives are wrong. I'm the accuser. I'm the adversary. I'm going to win. And God says, I don't think you will, so let's find out. You know, I know you won't, so let's find out. And so that's what happens. The hostility, the accuser. Isn't that interesting? Very interesting. More I could give you that, but let us let us go on. And here's one of the questions in the book of Job, is who's responsible for Job's suffering? Is it Satan or is it God? Is it God and his sovereignty, if he's in control of everything, or is it Satan and his hostility? That's some of the tension of the book of Job. Third key player is his wife, Job and his wife. The word here is Job's wife and her negativity. Job's wife and her negativity as a spouse. She has a small part with a huge impact. Here's all that she says in the whole book. And this is a book full of words. The woman speaks the least. Very good. But here's what she says, ladies. Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Very interesting. What's the issue? Job's integrity. What was the whole adversary saying? He'll curse you. What's she saying? Go ahead and do it. Well, that's interesting. We'll talk about that when we come to it. Number five. The fifth is Job's friends and their superiority. So we've got Job's integrity, God's sovereignty, his wife's, uh, Satan's hostility, his wife's negativity, and we got Job's friends and their superiority as miserable comforters. We're going to meet them. Here they are. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and then a young man named Elihu, who is a very angry young man. These three are Job's friends. These three are Job's friends. They come from a long ways. They hear of his suffering. This is a mystery young man that just can't keep his mouth shut and jumps into the story. And they see themselves as superior. Throughout the book, tying up all these key players, we're going to see Job's tenacity in maintaining his integrity. And by the end of the story, we're going to see that God's sovereignty includes His pity, His mercy, and His compassion. Well, those are the key players. Let's look at the big picture. 
you've got a chart. I've given it to you. There's everything you ever need to know, want to know, didn't know, didn't want to know about the book of Job on this chart. If you want to keep it real simple, just look at the first top line. Just look at the first top line. Keep it real simple. Overview of Job. If you want to get into more of the content, go below that. If you want to trace some themes, then look at the bottom. But that's your big picture of Job. Now, here's what we want to do for the rest of our time for the big picture. Is I want to summarize the book of Job into three acts. And you can see them divided there at the top of your chart. We're going to begin with the prologue or the introduction. And it's in prose, narrative. And it's about Job's undeserved suffering. And then act two is full of monologues and dialogues that are all set in poetry, and it deals with unanswered questions and unsolved mysteries. And then Act 3 is the epilogue, or the conclusion, and it's written in prose narrative. And it's about Job's undeserved blessings. So what we're going to do is we're going to do this in three acts. And I'm going to summarize Act 1, and I'll summarize Act 3, and then we're going to have a dramatic reading of Act 2. So let's go. Are you ready? A summary of Act 1. The opening scene is this. It's set down on earth and it introduces us to the patriarch Job and the problem that the rest of the book deals with. Job is a God-fearing, evil-hating man who is upright and blameless in his integrity. He's healthy, wealthy, and wise. Really healthy, really wealthy, and really wise. In fact, he's the greatest man in the east and he's extremely godly to the point of offering whole burnt sacrifices for each of his 10 grown children just in case they might have cursed god in their heart not with their mouth just in their heart meanwhile unknown to job in heaven satan the adversary of god and the accuser of his people shows up when god's angelic servants have gathered for a heavenly council in god's throne room God initiates a challenge with his adversary and the accuser of his people. And he says, why don't you consider the blamelessness and the integrity of Job, which is a trophy of my grace and a testimony to his fear of God. No one on earth is more godly than my servant Job. But the adversary accuses Job of selfish motives, of serving God merely because God's blessed him with great wealth. In other words, God gives wealth to Job to get worship from God and God gives worship to God to get wealth and health from Job, from God. The accuser slanderously suggests that if God would remove the hedge of protection around all that Job possesses, and if God would just reach out his hand and take from Job all his wealth, Job would forsake God and curse him to his face. So God gives Satan permission to tempt Job but not touch him. Satan swiftly strikes by synchronizing a series of catastrophes like a scheming terrorist. The adversary uses natural and human forces from every direction to destroy everything Job owns in a single day. All his livestock, all ten of his children, all of his servants are utterly lost except for four messengers bearing the tragic news. Without any knowledge of God's interaction with Satan, Job responds with remarkable integrity, worshiping Yahweh by saying this, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all of this, Job did not sin and did not blame God. 
Well, unsuccessful but unrelenting. Satan once again joins God's angels when they present themselves and once again initiates a challenge with the adversary. God once again acknowledges Job's blameless integrity and the undeserved suffering that God has allowed due to the accuser's spiteful accusations. This time the adversary accuses Job of serving God merely because God has blessed him with good health. He deceitfully implies that Job did not curse God after the loss of his wealth because God did not reach out his hand and touch his health. So God gives Satan permission to touch Job, but not to murder him. Satan wastes no time by severely inflicting Job with painful, itching, oozing sores over his entire body from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. Job's suffering so great that his own wife urges him to give up, give in to the temptation. Why do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But once again, without any knowledge of God's interaction with the accuser, Job responds with blameless integrity. You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. When three of his friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, hear about Job's suffering, they come to sympathize with him and comfort him. And Job is so disfigured by his sickness that they don't even recognize him as he sits on the trash heap outside the walls of the city. They stay with him for a full week without saying a word, grieving over the living death that their friend is suffering. The seven days of silence is the wisest thing they ever did. And then they open their mouths. But actually, Job is the one who breaks the silence with his cursing and crying. And so the second act of the drama begins. Unanswered questions and unsolved mysteries. So if we have our, our, our uh, players come up, we have uh, Job. Come on up, men. Job is going to be played by Todd. Eliphaz by Kirk. Bill Dad by Pat Dunn. Zophar by Randy, Elihu by Kevin. God got sick and couldn't show up today, and so I'm filling in for God, uh, who was supposed to be Jim Lay. Let us begin. I wish I had never been born. Better off I'd been killed by God would let me die. Why am I left to live and linger in these bitter Round one. I must be looks like Mr. Advice here. You really are blameless. Would you be suffering like this if you the third? Is God responsible for the blameless integrity of both? God destroys the wicked, not the upright. I know, I've seen it firsthand. In fact, I had a vision about this as well. One night I experienced a vision that drove home this question. How can mere mortals be more righteous than God? How can humans be better than their creator? God, listen, stop pretending that you are. If you were, if I were you, I would humbly submit to God's I'm 
crazy man. Don't you do it. Honest enough. Too hard on your ears. God is a Or disobeyed his word before the human flesh is passed by the Oh, what compassionate friends you are. I thought your comfort would be like a refreshing awakening. Your company is dry as the dust. My suffering has struck you with fear. Someone is as desperate as me who needs kindness from you. But he does not protect you from the God Almighty. And how much more? Already has. If you actually have something to say to me, first show me what I've done wrong. Instead of quickly assuming I'm getting what I deserve because I have sinned. Are you really going to rebuke me for my words? To talk about the hopeless with no more weight than the wind. God, it has come down to this. Life is hard and you die. My body's covered with worms. Have pity on me, God. Therefore, I am not going to shut up. I'm going to let the bitterness of my soul spill out. God, what are you? What are people thinking anyway? Why are you always watching us and examining us every moment? Why are you picking on me, God? What have I done to you? Have I sinned against you? If I have, you better hurry up. I am not going to last much longer. You. How dare you to question God's justice? Your children died. They must have sinned. They sinned against you. You seek God. You are pure and upright, and God will graciously forgive you far more than your heavenly Father can. But He hasn't. You have not. Look back to previous generations and learn from past tradition, and you'll see that we have gotten you right. Take our advice. Here is the bottom line. God does not reject people of integrity. He does not try to throw stones at them. I agree that God is just. But how can I prove to him that my suffering is undeserved? When you will vindicate me, someone can win a legal battle with God. He's far wiser and more powerful than me. Look, my integrity is blameless. But if I win against God Almighty in the court of law, I would still come out the loser because he is so much greater than me. I hate my life right now. What's the point anyway? God destroys both the innocent and the guilty. You are actually increasing my suffering by condemning an innocent man. I am presumed guilty and still proven innocent, so why should I even try defending myself? Even if, even if I were as pure as snow and scrubbed myself clean with life you would still ignore the evidence and plunge me into a slime pit just to prove that I'm dirty. Besides, God is not a man like me that you can drag into court and come to an agreement. I need a mediator that can bring God and me together and settle this once and for all. I hate my life. Therefore, I'm not going to shut up. I'm going to continue to let the bitterness of my soul spill out. God, don't condemn me. Explain why you're doing this to me, please. Are you sadistic? 
pleasure from torturing me while smiling on the trees of the wicked, even though I am not guilty? Why did you forbid me to do this It would have been better if I had gone from the womb to the tomb. Go away and let me die. No one going to dispute his many empty words. Endless babble. No one going to stop this shameless filibuster designed to wear us down. This is radiant paper. Will no one stop you from making up such lies about your blameless integrity? No one rebuke you for making a mockery of God's justice in such tall tales. Dare you claim to be pure in God's sight? I wish God would openly rebuke you. He's given you far less punishment than you've actually deserved. You can't fathom this. Have you never explored the limits of the Almighty? A woman will give birth to a donkey or an idiot like you, will ever become wise. God is so sovereign, so powerful, and so wise that he can see right through your deception. So he must repent right now. And then you will once again experience God's blessing. All your present suffering will be forgotten like so much water under the bridge. You will once again sleep securely, free from once again, seek you out for wise advice and help in time of need. Or, choose to repent of your sins and perish under his curse for the rest of your life. You guys really know everything, don't you? No doubt when you die, wisdom will die with you. <laughs> but I know as much as you do about God's I'm not inferior to you, even though I'm just a joke to my friends. Look, look at Mr. God answered my prayers. Here's another tragedy. Check out how Mr. Blameless Integrity is suffering. What a joke. What a crock. I always do this to people who are being mockery. I always do these kind of things to people who are stumbling and then laugh as they're falling in earth. What can I say to that? Even dumb animals are smarter than me. Because at least they know that Yahweh has done this. You are right. Wisdom and power belong to God. And I wish I could argue my case with God Almighty himself. Instead, I am here with you worthless quacks who are smearing me with lies. The best way you can demonstrate wisdom right now is to shut your trap. Stop talking for a minute and just listen to me. You're defending God with lies. My integrity is blameless, and I don't deserve it. But even if God kills me, I will help him. Because I know one day he will vindicate me. And this will be my salvation. For a godless person can never come before his presence and face to face. Why are you doing this to me? You have ordained our lives to be short and full of trouble. Give me a break. My death is inevitable and irreversible. So I wish you would just kill me and get it over with. Then I eagerly await my resurrection. Meanwhile, you relentlessly grind down my hope and strength. Round two. You know, wise man, you windbag. 
fills yourself with hot air. The words easily testify against you. Talk yourself out of the fear of God with your many words. All your talk about your blamelessness causing so much static, you can't even hear what God is trying to tell you about yourself. Stop ignoring the wisdom of your elders. You have far more experience than you. You are older than even your father. And you act as if you were the first man ever to stand. Don't you think you have the wisdom and experience of Adam himself? Or, or do you actually think you were around before the creation of the world and have listened in on the secret counsels of God? Are you alone wise? What do you know that we don't? What insights do you have that we don't? Plainly reading righteous, all human beings corrupt. The wicked always suffer, suffer eventually. So your extreme suffering is irrefutable evidence. You have been extremely wicked. Everything. You miserable comforters are endlessly blowing hot air. If I were in your place, I would be encouraged and comforted with my words. God has discovered this, even though I am blameless. Surrounded by taunting mockers, not a single wise man among you. I am sure you want to die. Think, you're stupid? Well, that's a barely Suss out his plans, weakens his steps, traps him, terrifies him, destroys him, burns him, dries up his life, perishes the glory of his name, but not you. Therefore, you are wicked, and you don't even know God. How long will you shamelessly torture me with your insulting words? Even if I have sinned, it's none of your business. God has wronged me. I don't deserve this. My own family and friends have abandoned me. Even little boys scorn me. I pity you. Why do you suffer like God does? But I know, I know that my Redeemer lives. And in my body I will see God. He will vindicate me and punish you for persecuting me. You insult me. God always judges the wicked before judging you. Just hear me out, and then you may mock on. Why do the wicked prosper? Who can teach God knowledge? Some people experience a dynamic, stressful, pure life. Others never enjoy a single experience. Oh, stop. Open your eyes and look around. Wicked people prosper all the time. How can your empty words comfort me? So-called answers. Nothing but lies. Round three. God punishing you because you're so righteous? Is that what you want us to believe? Listen, it's obvious to everyone that your wickedness is great. Surely you ruthlessly rob your own poor relatives, or, or you've refused to feed the poor, and mistreated the widows, and crushed orphans. That's why you're experiencing all this suffering. That's why you've lost all your wealth and all your health. Your God is so far away that he can't see or judge your heart. You continue on the path of the wicked people who repent. I wish I knew where God is so that I could present my case to him. Then he would answer me and establish my blamelessness. I am innocent. God sovereignly judge once. Terrified. Why doesn't the Almighty punish the wicked now? He will punish them in due course. Not so. Who can prove Elias? God is awesome. 
can human beings be like that? They are just magic. Thank you so much for helping me, helping me that I'm powerless and for giving me such wise advice when I'm without wisdom. God sovereignly controls stuff. The heavens, the weather, animals, what we perceive as chaos. And that's just scratching the surface. God has unjustly denied me justice. I'm innocent and blameless. Nevertheless, God will bring the wicked to justice. Not in this life, Just remember, only God has all the answers. People don't even know where to find wisdom. Wisdom for us means fearing the Lord and turning away from evil. I used to be blessed and esteemed, now contemptible and wretched, mocking. I'm a disfigured vessel with God's beautiful face and passion, even though I have been righteous. I have not enough to have complete lives and been exalted, even my servant in vain, refused to help the and mistreated widows, refused to feed the orphans, trusted or boasted in my wealth, worshipped the sun or moon, rejoiced over the misfortune of my enemies, cursed anyone, turned away strangers, nor hid my only. I can plead my case to the Almighty. I have neither stolen nor murdered to obtain my land. Elihu, who waits to speak before, because he is much younger than the others, is furious with both Job and his friends. Elihu burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also to Job's friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Elihu is going to be right to defend God's justice and will advance the discussion by suggesting that Job's greatest sin may not be in something he said or did before the suffering, but the rebellion he is displaying in the suffering. The three counselors had claimed that Job was suffering because he was sinning, but Elihu explains that he was sinning because he was suffering. I know I'm young, but I've listened to you guys long enough. Now listen to me. Not one of you three refuted Job's arguments, so I must speak. Listen carefully to me, Job. You claim to be innocent and thus charge God with injustice, but you're wrong. God is just and can do whatever he wants. God is not as remote as you think. Sometimes he reveals himself by dreams. Other times the language he uses to communicate to us is pain. Repent and experience God's blessing. I've got more wisdom to share, so keep listening. Job claims that he is just and that God is unjust. But God can't be unjust. Job deserved God's severest judgment for answering like wicked men. Job, do you think it's right to claim, on the one hand, that you're more righteous than God, and on the other hand, that living a righteous life doesn't pay off? God is not listening to your pathetic cries to plead your case before him. You're foolish to think that God is obligated to answer you. You're speaking without knowledge. I've got more to say on God's behalf, but be assured that he is perfect in knowledge. God is just. He is mighty and gives justice to the afflicted. He tells them how they have sinned and then restores them if they repent or punishes them if they don't. God is ready to restore you, Job, so don't turn away. God is incomparably great and beyond our understanding. We don't even understand how he controls thunderstorms. We're too ignorant to argue our case before the majestic, merciful, almighty, righteous God. That's why people sin. A tornado blows in and God speaks. Who is this? 
Who questions my wisdom and justice with words without knowledge? Get ready to defend yourself, Job, because now I will question you and you will inform me. Where were you when I created the universe? Can you providentially control every detail of my creation? The sea, the morning daylight, the springs that fill the sea, death, the vast expanses of the earth, light, darkness, snow, hail, the east wind, rain, thunderbolts, dew, ice, frost, the stars, the laws of the universe, clouds, lightning, wisdom, lions and ravens. Surely you know these things, for you were already born and have lived so many years. Do you know everything about my animals? The mountain goat, deer, wild donkey, wild ox, ostrich, horse, hawk, and eagle? Will you argue, accuse, and correct the Almighty? Now is your chance to speak up. Shut my mouth. I am not worthy. How can I answer? Get ready to defend yourself, Job, because now I will question you and you will inform me. Will you defend your own righteousness at the expense of my righteousness? Are you as strong as God? Prove it by punishing everyone who is proud, and then I'll acknowledge your superiority. Can you control the untamable, invincible behemoth and leviathan? You would never pick a fight with them. So why are you picking a fight with me? Why do you think you can stand against me? That you have a claim against me that I must pay? I own everything and owe no one anything. You are supremely sovereign. And you do whatever you want. I question the wisdom of words and lack of knowledge. I didn't know what I was talking about. Now that I understand you far more clearly than before, I repent. End of Act 2. Let's give these guys a hand. Thank you, gentlemen. And here's our summary of Act 3. The undeserved blessings of blameless Job. God then rebukes Job's three friends because they spoke wrongly about God in a way that Job did not. And he requires the three miserable comforters to bring sacrifices to Job and ask Job to intercede to God on their behalf. God answers Job's prayer for reconciliation with his friends and then proceeds to restore to Job even greater blessings than before, but without ever telling Job about the ultimate reason why he suffered all that he did. Job never knew the rest of his own story until he died and went to be with God in heaven assuming God even told it to him then, or until the Lord revealed it to him under divine inspiration when he wrote his own story down as Scripture. God blesses Job with twice as much wealth as before, with relatives and friends who are now sympathetic and comforting, seven more sons as well as three more daughters. And Job died an old man and full of days. The end. There you go. Your overview of Job. Now, what is the main purpose of the story? Well, let me ask you a couple questions to get you thinking. Does the Bible teach a prosperity gospel where God promises to always bless those who trust Him and obey Him with blameless integrity? If you're sick 
or poor is all you have to do is name it and claim it by faith and God will come through with health and wealth? Why is God... This is what the prosperity... If you have a prosperity gospel mindset and you enter into suffering, here's what you tend to think. Why is God permitting this to happen to me? A person like me doesn't deserve to be treated like this by God. Did you pick that up in Job's thinking a little bit? Did you pick that up? And, and, and in a sense, that's what his friends were saying as well. Look, if you were the right kind of person, if you really were blameless, this bad stuff wouldn't be happening to you. Are you getting that? That's the prosperity gospel. Or, number two, does the Bible teach a persevering gospel that calls us to trust God for trusting God in both the good times of prosperity and the bad times ad, of adversity? even in the very bad times of undeserved suffering. See, that's the hardest of all. If, if we've sinned and we suffer, okay, we can, we can deal with that, right? If, if someone else, you know, we, 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 we can understand if there's a reason for it, but when it's undeserved, and here's the question of the persevering gospel, and it's the question that Satan put to God about Job. Will I worship God in good times and bad times? Is God's majesty worthy of my integrity in both prosperity and adversity? You see, the question is not why is God doing this to me. The question is, what will I do in the midst of what God has allowed? How will I respond? That's the persevering gospel. Let me put it another way. And the book kind of has, I call it a throne room perspective and an earthworm perspective, okay? The chapters 1 and 2 of Job have a throne room perspective. You know, it's like being up in the plane and looking down, okay? But as you went through the, the bulk of the book, and reason it's so confusing and frustrating, the bulk of the book has an earthworm perspective of from the bottom up, okay? Now, from the earthly earthworm human perspective, the problem in the book of Job is God's the one on trial for allowing undeserved suffering to come upon his blameless servant. And the question becomes, why does God allow his blameless servant to suffer? And this is what Job keeps asking. Why, God, why? Are you a sadist? Are, are you, are, why are you doing this? Why are you silent? Why have you abandoned me? God is unjust because I know I'm blameless. And, and he was blameless. Right? God affirmed it two times. And he affirmed it at the end. His friends put Job on trial because they're like, yeah, God's just. And so if this is happening to you, you've got to be unjust. So just admit it. Repent and fess up. But number four, when you get the throne room from the heavenly perspective. So number three was from the earthly perspective. Number four, from the heavenly throne room, divine perspective. The problem in the book of Job is, re is revealed to be that Job and God are on trial to see why God blesses, why, why Job worships God, to see whether he will serve God in times of adversity like he does in times of prosperity. Why does Job worship and fear God? Is it for what he gets from God, health and wealth? 
Why does God bless his servants? Is it to buy their devotion or bribe them? So you see, in reality, in the book, Satan puts God and Job on trial. God, your motives are wrong because you buy these your people off. Job, his motives are wrong because he only worships God because of what he can get. Take those things away and let's see if they still worship you. God in his sovereign greatness and goodness is confident of Job's motives and the power of his grace to change a person's heart to be pure and blameless. So God takes Satan, the adversary, up on his accusations, not because he's like, oh, I wonder what's going to happen to Job. No, I know my servant is blameless and fears me and loves me. And I know I love him and I've changed his heart. He will worship me in both prosperity and adversity. Let's go to it and let's see my glory. Let's see my grace and let's see Job's blamelessness. Satan, the adversary, is not so confident and accuses God and Job of having these selfish motives. So what's the gospel according to Job? What's the main purpose? Okay, some of you, it's a complex book. You say, I go too deep. Let me give you the book of Job in one word. Are you ready? Persevere. There you go. Persevere. Job in one word. Persevere. You want it a little bigger? Persevere through prosperity and adversity with integrity. And right now in this room, you're experiencing one of those and a mixture of both. And you say, what am I to do? Why? 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 You got to stop saying why and you got to persevere through adversity and prosperity with integrity. But here's the, the clincher. Let me give you the purpose of Job in one sentence. What's the whole book about? Perseverance through prosperity and adversity with integrity. What is being said about that one thing? Here it is. The reason you persevere through adversity and prosperity with integrity is because God's majesty is always worthy of our worship. Can I hear an amen? God's majesty. You see, the reason he doesn't answer why is because you don't need a why, you need a who. And the who is this God who is master over the thunderstorms, over the goats and the children they bear, and over the, the winds and the seas and this universe and the stars and the skies. And if he can manage that, then be rest assured, if you're his child, he can manage you in the midst of prosperity and adversity. But you've got to persevere. Because he's worthy. He is worthy. He is worthy. Now that is the message of Job. And you take it and, 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 and it's amazing. The literary masterpiece of this book. Job's two replies to his suffering sum up what I just said. Naked I came into the world and naked I will leave it. The Lord has given prosperity and the Lord has taken adversity. Blessed be the name of the Lord. His majesty is worthy of my perseverance. And then the second wave comes and it gets personal and he loses his health. And he says to his foolish wife, is it right for us to accept good prosperity from God and not accept adversity from God? You see how... 
These guys aren't like us modern. They don't go to the Satan card. They go right to God's sovereignty and say, look, if we're going to take good from him, it's only right that we take bad from him as well. He owns everything and he owes us nothing. And then if you want to see James 5.11, is perseverance really what it's about? Yeah, James 5.11, count those blessed who endure. You have heard of the endurance, or you could translate that perseverance of Job, and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and merciful. There's His majesty. And then another theme verse from New Testament, 1 Peter 6-9, through we'll end with this. Such trials show the proven character of your faith, which is more valuable than gold. Gold that is tested by fire, even though it's passing away, and will bring praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. You have not seen Him, but you love Him. You do not see Him now, but you believe in Him. And so rejoice with indescribable and glorious joy, because you are attaining the goal of your faith, the salvation of your soul. So what about you and me? I have some questions at the end of your, your notes there. Read the book of Job again. Contemplate what you've heard this morning. Read over your notes and then ask your, yourselves these questions. And I won't go through those. You can read those. But it really comes down to this. In, in, times, in the good times of prosperity, how am I tempted to drift from God? And in bad times of adversity, how am I tempted to curse God? and to forsake following Him. How does our response to adversity that comes into our lives, and it comes, and it comes, how does my response reveal that maybe I really believe a prosperity gospel instead of a persevering gospel? You see, we think the prosperity guys are those health and wealth evangelists out there. We don't believe that. Oh, really? We have to look at our hearts and say, yeah, but when bad times come, do I begin to question God's goodness? Do I begin to waver in my faithfulness? Do I begin to forsake following Him? Man, that's good stuff. Aren't you, are, are you excited about coming in the weeks to come? Yeah, this is good. Let's pray. Father, uh, we are so glad You're sovereign, but in Your sovereignty, You show pity, You show mercy, your compassions, they fail not. They're new every morning. And God, if you were not sovereign, we'd have no hope. And so we thank you for revealing to us your great majesty. So that like Job, we can persevere in prosperity and, and still depend totally on you. And then in adversity, not to... Not to wallow in bitterness but to to persevere even though we're bold and we ask hard questions and we and we cry out and yet god we don't forsake you following you fearing you obeying you. may we be that kind of people in jesus name amen